You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 1st of March 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... You cannot defeat him by thinking he is a man of principle who has morals and rules. And Alexei realised that uh, you are not dealing with a politician, but with a bloody monster. After his wife accuses President Putin of his murder, the funeral of the Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny is scheduled to happen today. But security cameras have already been installed at the church and undertakers have refused to take his body from the morgue. We'll look ahead to a difficult day. Also ahead, a Texas showdown as Joe Biden and Donald Trump head to the state to talk immigration from two very different standpoints. We'll be joining Georgina Godwin in Adelaide to celebrate Writers' Week and Andrew Muller will remind us of what we've learned this week. We learned that the Willy Wonka of this particular chocolate factory believes that golden tickets should henceforth be issued more sparingly on the grounds that foreigners speak foreign. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Voting is underway in Iran as the country holds its first election since protests in 2022. A US government shutdown has been narrowly avoided for now after the Senate approved a short-term spending package. And a former US ambassador is expected to plead guilty to charges of spying for Cuba for decades. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, if Alexei Navalny's funeral goes ahead today, and there are reasons why it could there will be no great eulogy celebrating him as a man who stood up to Vladimir Putin. Mourners will not be wearing or carrying slogans. Cameras have been set up to record the event. But as we go to air, there's still no hearse to transport his body to the service. So to tell us more, I'm joined now in the studio by Stephen Diel, a Russia analyst and regular Monocle Radio contributor. A very good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning, Emma. Um, I mean, as we go to air... Um, there is no hearse to transport his body and there's a real struggle for this funeral to take place, isn't there? Yes, I think the first surprise in some ways was that um, Navalny's body was actually given back to his mother um, because you may remember um, even a week ago they were saying, oh, no, 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 you can't have the body back and, and that she was being put under pressure to have some sort of secret burial somewhere because what the last thing that the Russian authorities want is that there will be a grave, which, of course, will become a place of pilgrimage for, for many people throughout Russia. We, it's much more difficult nowadays to protest in Russia, but we did see in the wake of uh, Navalny's death, I would say Navalny's murder, uh, that people all over the country did go to certain monuments and, and leave flowers. So there's still a lot of support for him. Why do you think they have agreed for this to happen? It would it be, have been much easier for the Russian authorities to bury him up in the Arctic. It would, it would, and um, 
to a certain extent, a lot of the things that um, the Russian authorities have done in recent years have shown you don't like us, we don't care. And um, that would have been another one. Um, perhaps there was someone who had an ounce of humanity in them, and uh, which because this very much appeals to the Russian way of dealing with the dead. Um, it, it's a very um, formalized process. Um, for example, uh, someone after they've died, they will be uh, marked, their, their death will be marked on, on a certain number of days afterwards, according to the biblical tradition, and then on the following year, and, and so on. So, so there is a real routine, and this survived, it's, it's basically to do with the Russian Orthodox Church, but it basically survived all through Soviet times, those atheist times, um, and it's, it's been revived. So there would have been a lot of unease for a lot of Russians for the body not to be given back. And I think that someone in authority, and probably not Putin himself, but someone saw that actually this is a better way of doing it to, to let them bury the body. Because if you don't let them bury the body, you don't give the body back, you just get rid of it secretly, then that offends this this deep orthodox belief that many Russians have. So uh, that, that's the only reason I can think that they did actually finally agree to it. There is also the, the fact that what the... After his death, when people were just bringing flowers to various places which had become impromptu memorial spots for Navalny, 400 people were arrested. And just over this last week, we have seen um, cameras being put up at the graveyard, cameras being put up at the church. And this is a prime moment for the Russian authorities to have a look at who is close to Navalny and possibly make a list. Oh, um, they already have lists, of course. But yes, you're right. Um, th their behaviour, what what their behaviour actually shows um, over all of this, and and particularly over this question of the funeral, is and this may sound a little strange, but I'll try and explain it. To my mind, Putin is weaker now than he has ever been. Um, I'll explain why. Um, if he can be so afraid of someone who is is actually now dead. Um, he's not even got to worry about this man stuck, who's he's stuck in a prison camp, whose name he would never mention. Um, he, he's, he is still representing a threat to him. He still represents the idea that people might come out on the streets in support of his memory now. Um, because, uh, and I'm, I know I've said this on the radio many times before, but it is absolutely true that the thing that Putin is most worried about is what they call bunt, this spontaneous uprising from below. And anything that can get people gathered together, anything that can make people have any sort of demonstration, be it peaceful, be it in support of someone who is against Putin, that is a threat to Putin. I think there's, actually there's two, I think this is the second time in two days that Putin has shown his weakness. Because I would say also that when he made his State of the Nation address um, on Thursday, and he reacted to Macron's comment, President Macron's comment earlier in the week that NATO might actually have to send, end up sending troops into Ukraine. And he reacted saying, we, you know, we will therefore cause nuclear war and this will destroy the world and so on. That actually is a sign of weakness again. That's the bully in Putin, really worried about what might actually happen, that, that if, because you know, if, he knows if NATO troops were to go into Ukraine, the Russian army hasn't got a chance. They really would be not not just defeated, but but driven out, uh, and that of course would signal the end for Putin if if um, if the Ukrainian war ends that way. So he's actually showing great weakness, um, and so the authorities are they're they're almost between a rock and a hard place when it comes to Navalny because if they didn't give the body back, 
then that would have offended lots of people and giving it back has also offended the, the way they're handling it is offending lots of people yeah let's look a little bit more in depth at, at putin's uh, state of the nation speech i mean it's not state of the nation but the state of the way that he saw the rest of the world as well wasn't it yes um the i mean it went on for nearly two hours the vast majority of it were what was devoted to domestic issues um because russia has got a lot of domestic problems at the moment um many of them caused by sanctions and that's only going to get worse for them but inflation is high um uh, people's standard of living which has been falling uh, particularly since the start of the war but even before that um is is falling fast um so he's trying to reassure them that um, that all is well but also as you say saying to the rest of the world you know we're russia we're strong you know don't don't try and mess with us the words are beginning to sound very hollow um the the fact remains though is that he did use the nuclear word and he did say that you know he would unleash goodness knows what on um europe especially if other nation soldiers participated in the ukrainian war I mean, the, U- the us has pushed back in the last 12 hours and said no sign russia preparing to use nuclear weapons um there there is no evidence that this is is happening but it does become again that huge war of words and evidence as well with the united states again once again becoming that voice which starts to sort of disproves a lot of things i mean this this was quite a similar situation in the run up to the um invasion of ukraine wasn't it the, the us has got a very good pair of eyes on russia Oh, a very good pair of eyes, very good intelligence, both from satellites and to a certain extent on the ground. Um, and yes, the fact they're saying, you know, we're not seeing any preparation for, for a nuclear war um, because it it couldn't, you know, it's not just a question of Putin pressing a button and that's the start of a nuclear war. There there, there, there will be signs that would, would be spotted. Um, and, and the point is, Putin knows, you know, yes, he may boast that his country has more nuclear weapons than any other. Um, first of all, he would have to rely on them working a lot better than the Russian army did when it invaded Ukraine. Um, and there's no guarantee that that would happen. But also, actually, um, he knows that if, if nuclear war were to start, and it's a terrible prospect even to be thinking about, but Russia would be wiped off the face of the earth. Um, Moscow and St. Petersburg would be initial targets. Um, there would be there would be no Russia left. There were, you could say, well, maybe there could be no world, no civilization left. But um, Russia, in the first instance, uh, if even if it fired the first missile, the retaliation against Russia would would wipe out anything that's there. Um, finally, let's return back to um, the funeral of Alexei Navalny. Um, just looking at the what's happening on the news now. Riot police have just arrived in front of the church. Um, the church. Is an orthodox is a Russian Orthodox church with with Navalny having a very strong faith apparently in the last few years of his life. Um, they have introduced a special prayer for Russian victory in Ukraine. So this we we don't know what's going to happen inside the church and what's going to happen during the service. Well, one wonders how they're going to be able to navigate this with what words are going to be used. But how do you think this is going to be received by both Russians and and the rest of the world when you look at are Russians going to know much about what is going on here? How will it be disseminated? And will his death and and burial actually make anything change? First of all, Russians on the whole throughout the country will not know a great deal about it because it's very unlikely that it will be covered by the main TV stations. And that's how many Russians still get their news Um there might maybe a line they may feel we've got to say something because the word has spread. Um, those who've got 
VPNs and can actually read news from around the world will be far more aware of it. Um, and I'm sure there will be demonstrations in, in various various cities throughout Russia. Um, the, the fact that the that the riot police are having to go to the church. Uh, that again, this, you're, you're right. This, and of course, we're talking ahead of events, so we'll have to wait and see how the day pans out. But the, the fact that the Orthodox Church has been reinstated, Russians, many of them say they, they have a feel for it. They, they may not be deep believers, but it's, it's part of their culture. It's part of being Russian. And that will unnerve a lot of people, sort of seeing, you know, seeing a lot of thugs in uniform, which is what these guys are, um, around the church. It's also, that's another sign of weakness on Putin's part. You know, it's, it's rather like the Nazis. You, you give the, the thugs and the sadists, put them in uniform and give them a, a, a bat and they can beat people over the head with, which they enjoy doing. Um, but that's a sign also that your society is not stable and your leader is weak. Stephen DL, thank you so much as ever for joining us in the studio. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. It's 7.13 here in London. It is 1.13am in Brownsville, Texas, which is where President Biden and almost certain Republican challenger Donald Trump arrived yesterday, some 300 miles apart for duelling trips to the US-Mexico border. Uh, Mr. Biden, President Biden, was in Brownsville, Texas. You know and I know it's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? Let's remember who the heck we work for. We work for the American people, not the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. We work for the American people. Mr. Trump was in Eagle Pass, Texas. The biggest risk we have is nine months. That's a long time. A lot of bad things can happen. As I always say in speeches and rallies, it's if you take the 10 worst presidents in the history of our country and you added them all up, all of the problems, all of the lousy jobs they've done, you can add them all up. It's not as bad as this one man has done for our country. And that was Mr. Trump. It's an indicator of just how huge an issue immigration has become to the 2024 campaign and how much each man wants to use it to his advantage. Well, to go through this, uh, Scott Lucas, adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute, University College College Dublin, uh, and regular voice here on Monocle Radio, joins me now. A very good morning to you, Scott. Morning, Emma. So two men, where did they, why did they go where they went and, and what was the purpose? Well, I mean, they both went to Texas because immigration is going to be one of the leading issues in this year's presidential election. Uh, and because each side is going to try to to figure out a way to, to mobilize their voters around that issue or to limit the possible damage to them on that issue. I think it's what's more interesting beyond the fact that they both went to Texas and that they have this issue is the very, very different approaches and therefore the very different choice that you, you're having presented there. And you heard it in the clips. On the one hand, Joe Biden, who's speaking about the $20 billion border security measures that have been passed by the Senate, but are being blocked by the Trumpist in the House, is saying, look, we need a practical response to deal with the increase in migration across the U.S.-Mexico border. On the other hand, Trump isn't offering you any steps to deal with this beyond a reference to you know the, the the wall with Mexico, 
whatever that might be. He's simply throwing out more invective, more insults and saying, look at me. Uh, you know, I'm the guy who somehow will deport everybody from the United States who shouldn't be here on day one. It, it's an interesting how they both took the same narrative and pushed it in different directions, because when you have Joe Biden in Brownsville, that was a town which had for a long, long time was the busiest corridor for illegal crossings. But there has been a sharp drop in recent months, which is something that Biden can use to his advantage in terms of his narrative. Donald Trump, however, goes to Eagle Pass, uh, about 325 miles north, uh, and that's seeing the largest number of crossings. So which man is right Oh, gosh, Emma, you know, you're actually asking me to deal with facts rather than spin in terms of this issue, you know, and pushing against the wave that facts don't really break through. Uh, the fact here is, is that there has been an increase in migration um, across the border. But there's two important aspects of this that you won't hear from the Trump camp. The first here is, is that it's part of a global phenomenon. And that is that we've got a historic surge in migrants and refugees because of the combination of wars, civil wars, uh, environmental damage, um, economic problems, and COVID-19. And so the pattern of migration in the United States has actually radically shifted. It's not Mexicans who make up the largest number of people coming across the border. It's people from other parts of Central and Latin America, and indeed some from further beyond. Secondly, that surge began not during the Biden administration, it began during the Trump administration. Especially since 2019, there has been uh, this rise in migration by both external factors and also because the American system was broken under Trump. Uh, the mythical wall with Mexico, the attempt to separate families from their children, uh, the, the use of invective rather than actually bolstering immigration courts or even bolstering border security meant that the number of migrants that crossed the border doubled in 2019, which is long before uh, Joe Biden took office. Um, Mr. You mentioned uh, the wall. Um, Donald Trump says that there is a very dangerous border between the US and Mexico. How long is it until build a wall comes back? Well, it's already here. I mean, you, you know, the fact is it it wasn't just in the appearances in Texas. You might remember a guy named Steve Bannon, Trump's chief strategist, who almost went to prison over a uh, fraudulent fundraising scheme to build the wall. He was pushing this line at the Conservative Political Action Conference just a few days ago. Again, reality is needed here. For all that talk that Trump put out about the wall, on the 2,000-mile border between the U.S. and Mexico, there were only 45 450 miles of border that were reinforced during the Trump administration. And most of that was not with the 10 or 12 foot wall that he wanted. It was just simply by bolstering the fence that already existed. And secondly, just a quick reminder, Trump always said that Mexico would pay for the wall. The total amount of money that Mexico used to pay for Donald Trump's wall, zero. Um, just tell us a little bit though about how this is being handled locally, because there are reports that in Texas there are local troops blocking access to the federal border patrol. And and this, in terms of the way it appears, poses quite a serious threat to Joe Biden's authority, doesn't it, in the way that the immigration system is being handled? This is part of the reason why Trump was at Eagle Pass, because that's where the Texas governor, uh, Greg Abbott, who is a diehard, even a hard-right Republican, has been trying to deploy these local groups, uh, troops and undercut federal authority. Uh, what you have here is a wider issue. And that is not to try to deal with the crisis, but to exacerbate it. 
you've got governors like uh, Greg Abbott in Texas and Ron DeSantis in Florida who've been grandstanding. Rather than actually dealing with these migrants in a humane way, in terms of providing them shelter, in terms of providing them a system which works in terms of hearing their cases for coming into the United States, because many of them are asylum seekers. They've simply been trying to ship these people out of Texas and Florida to states which have democratic administrations as far away as California and New York. And then Abbott deploys the local troops trying to override the authority of the U.S. Uh, US National Guard and say, I'm the guy who's really in charge here rather than Joe Biden. It actually means little in reality. It actually only contributes to the instability and the chaos but it's all part of the effort to try to get Trump elected in November. And Donald Trump has obviously made, as, as we've just been discussing, immigration his signature policy. But how much do Americans genuinely care about immigration? It depends on a lot on the media coverage, and it depends a lot on whether that coverage is on issues or on uh, spectacle and myths. Uh, if the issue gets a lot of coverage in the media, it rises to be amongst the leading issues in U.S. discourse. If you deal with it on the basis of facts and deal with it on the basis that this needs to have a long-term solution to decades of issues within the U.S. immigration system, then the public quite often turns away from it because shouting about immigration is easy. Dealing with the problem, that's a lot harder. Scott Lucas, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme, we'll have Andrew Muller's look back at the week and we'll hear from the two-time Academy Award-winning film score composer Hans Zimmer. My 13-year-old teenage arrogance always went, why am I hearing an orchestra when I'm in space? Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's continue with today's papers. Joining me uh, down the line is Ruth Michelson, a journalist and Middle East correspondent. A very good morning to you, Ruth. Where are you today? <laughs> good morning. I'm in Istanbul. Brilliant. And how is Istanbul? Uh, Istanbul is uh, a little grey, but, you know, slowly getting into spring. Excellent. Glad to hear it. Right. What have you found? Well, starting with um, the rather awful news, again, coming out of Gaza, um, lots of coverage of an incident um, where, in the words of the AP, Israeli troops fired on a crowd of Palestinians racing to pull food off of an aid convoy early on Thursday morning. Um, the estimates are that over 100 people were killed um, in this incident, which brought the death toll to over 30,000 people killed in Gaza since early October. There is this double narrative going on, isn't there, in this story, that um, many people say that those who died were crushed underneath um, some of the lorries in the stampede to get flour. Um, others say that the Israeli um, military fired upon them. There is evidence to suggest that both these stories are correct. 
Right. So we've seen uh, that Israeli military officials have been out um, speaking to the media. Um, for example, head of the IDF's international press department um, saying that there was no IDF involvement in this mass, ca mass casualty event, but then saying um, that he acknowledged, this is reported in the Washington Post, that IDF troops on one end of the, the aid convoy fired at people who approached Israeli forces in a threatening manner, in his words. Um, interesting to note that um, Eyewitness reporting from the ground um, in terms of actually being able to send a reporter there, that's restricted to Al Jazeera in terms of their ability to get access to Gaza. Um, so um, an Al Jazeera reporter um, who was on the scene, Ismail Al-Ghul, um, said that after opening fire, Israeli tanks advanced and ran over many of the dead and injured bodies. Um, he described it as a massacre. Uh, there are witnesses that spoke to the Washington Post and also spoke to Al Jazeera. One witness speaking to Al Jazeera said, we went to get flour, the Israeli army shot at us. Um, somebody speaking to the Washington Post describing how they um, were enduring extreme hunger, went to try and get aid, um, and then said that, um, and suddenly without any warning, the Israeli tanks started firing shortly after 4.30 in the morning as there was a crowd of people around these vehicles. Um, let's move on to a second story that we've been mentioning uh, briefly at the top of the hour in the headline is that um, voting in the Iranian parliamentary elections opens today. This is the first major election in 2020 since uh, the unrest in 2022 after a, a woman died in police custody for wearing her hijab in, incorrectly. Um, there was a, a huge focus on in Iran at that time, but now it appears to all intents and purposes any sign of dissent has been crushed. Well, it's rather interesting in reporting on this this uh, parliamentary election. You see, if like looking at the the coverage in different papers, um, the line that you keep seeing repeated is that this vote is uh, a test of legitimacy for the Iranian regime. Turnout is expected to be very low, but then um, there's you know some analysts basically saying that. The turnout is a measure of the government's popularity um, and in the words of someone speaking to The New York Times, and by extension, its power. And so this um, one analyst speaking uh, to The New York Times mentions that that essentially the boycott marks a kind of return to popular protest, people showing that they can take action by not agreeing with the regime's view that turnout is important. It's it's a difficult issue, isn't it? Because I think it's just what 30 opposition figures have been allowed to stand in a field of, I think it's more than 15,000 candidates. So if you are in Iran and you do wish to protest in some form, not voting does seem to be one of the only options, but we all know what happens to the erosion of democracy as a result. Right. I mean, I suppose it's probably worth asking whether you're starting out from a democratic standpoint, if you're having a vote in a place that isn't necessarily democratic. And I think that's the, the issue that people are grappling with, that, um, you know, there's uh, m interviews with members of the Reform Front, which is considered, um, it's a coalition of parties, um, again, in the words of the New York Times, generally favour more social freedoms and engagement with the West. They said that they were not participating in an election because all of their candidates have been disqualified. So this low voter turnout, um, no matter what happens, the you know broadly conservative factions um, are expected to maintain their grip on parliament. So within that situation, there's lots of people saying, you know, 
we don't what what exactly would we be voting for we don't have any choice um so you know one uh, 23 year old iranian woman um telling cnn i won't vote because the elections take place as a show and as propaganda so voting means being complicit and helping with this propaganda and the international repercussions are mentioned in the new york times article that i recommend everyone go and have a look at it's a, it's a good long read um it ties the, the the need to create domestic or to maintain domestic stability in Iran is one of the reasons why Iran has um, made such strenuous effort to not directly get involved in the Israel-Hamas conflict. Right. There's some discussion about the idea that the the Iranian regime wants to project this idea of stability, that, you know, there are these this important voters coming on that's seen as a test and it doesn't want to complicate this by being involved um, openly in in conflict elsewhere and, you know, projecting this idea of uh, stability at home. Um, let's have a look at what's happening at the Antalya Diplomacy Forum starting today. What's that about? Uh, so this is a Turkish government-led forum happening in Antalya. We're seeing um, various diplomats and world leaders jetting in today uh, for the theme of elevating diplomacy amidst crises. Turkey really likes to position itself as an important mediator um, and a place where diplomacy is elevated. So that's really what this forum presents an opportunity for the Turkish government to do. Um, already seeing some coverage in um, Anadolu, that's the state-run news agency, talking about how the foreign minister, Hakan Fidan, has already started by meeting with uh, various counterparts from Kazakhstan, Iraq, Lebanon, Gambia, and Tajikistan. Um, and there's also mention in uh, the Russian news agency TASS that the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has arrived, um, and he's expected to participate as well, which should make things rather interesting. Indeed, because that makes that, that, that perpetual question about which direction does Turkey like to face come round again? Absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of efforts to project at this different forum that there's all kinds of different participants. People are coming to, um, you know, have these discussions at a time when there's conflict happening close by um, and that this gives Turkey an opportunity to say, well, look, this is a place where people can come together and, and you know, we'll hear anyone, basically. Uh, finally, let's uh, end on a, on a note for our diaries for this weekend if we have children and we want to make them cry. Uh, there's a place in Scotland, and this is one of those age-old stories that obviously the artist Banksy has used as a springboard for his, his brilliant location, Dismal Land. Uh, this was a trip that was supposed to be great for children in Scotland and was far from it. Yeah, I feel like this is actually a cautionary tale about the use of AI in the modern age. So parents paid £35 to some of them um, telling the New York Times, the Scotsman, that they'd driven for several hours to go to what they thought would be a Willy Wonka themed event in this warehouse in Glasgow. And um, this father, Stuart Sinclair, talking to the New York Times, saying he drove his kids two hours from Dundee um, to, to go to this event and then said there were maybe 20 chairs, a couple of tables and a half inflated bouncy castle. And then amazing kicker. The worst part of it all, there was no chocolate. Um, what I rather like about this story is not the fact that obviously some poor children were left crying, which is not nice at all. But the fact is it's made it as far as the New York Times. <laughs> it's gone absolutely everywhere. I think there's something about this event and the, just the sheer contrast between what was promised 
and the reality where all of these actors are speaking to different outlets around the world, Vulture and the independent, one of the actors um, saying, you know, the guy who was supposed to play Willy Wonka, um, telling the independent, the script was 15 pages of AI generated gibberish of me just monologuing these mad things. Um, and, you know, it's gone around the world. I think it's got this kind of fire festival like appeal where people are just so captivated, understandably, by the contrast of these AI generated magical images of lollipops and this immersive experience and the reality of this, you know, a few posters and, and tables in a warehouse. Ruth Michelson in Istanbul. Thank you for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is 7.32. A quick look now at the latest headlines. Voting is underway in Iran as the country holds its first election since protests in 2022. Low turnout is expected following a period of unrest after the death of a young woman arrested for wearing her hijab improperly. Out of 15,000 candidates standing, only 30 from the reformist camp have been approved. A US government shutdown has been narrowly avoided for now, after the Senate approved a short-term spending package. It's a fourth stopgap measure in recent months. The money will only keep some federal government agencies running until the end of next week. And a former US ambassador is to plead guilty to charges of spying for Cuba for decades. The US Justice Department says Victor Manuel Rocha's espionage of the US system is one of the highest-reaching and longest-lasting infiltrations of the US government by a foreign agent. Russia served as US ambassador to Bolivia between 2000 and 2002. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. And having done that set of headlines, let's have a listen to what Andrew Muller's take is on the last seven days in news. Here's what we learned. We learned this week that the sensationally dismal pop-up theme park need not be an exclusively Christmas-oriented joy. You know the kind of thing usually established in some abandoned shed in a remote business precinct with an obviously, if understandably, drunk Santa Claus, the grotto a cardboard box with a balloon taped to it, the elves resentful between-jobs actors, the sleigh a mobility scooter pulled by a reindeer which is actually a pit bull wearing novelty antlers, the combination prompting the anguished tears of children and seething complaints of enraged parents telling delighted journalists that they paid a hundred quid or whatever for this. We learned that we may enjoy such wretched spectacles all year round thanks to the heroic labours of the Glasgow-based proprietors of what was billed as a Willy Wonka experience, a homage to the Roald Dahl character of that name, who has over the years become quite the family favourite for someone whose whole thing was luring children to their doom with the offer of confectionery. Where is the lie? We learned, or at least the parents who had calculated that 35 Scottish pounds was a reasonable price to pay to shut their kids up, learned that the reality of the installation fell somewhat short of the advertising and by a distance that proved sufficient to make news around the world. Families were sold on a day of pure imagination and wonder. However, when they arrived for the experience, they claimed they just found a minimally decorated warehouse and one bouncy The event advertised chocolate fountains, performances by Oompa Loompas, and interactive experiences, all for just $44. 
Well, disappointed attendees shared these photos that have since gone viral. They were let down by a sparingly decorated warehouse that didn't quite match the ad. One father said that kids received two jelly beans each and a quarter cup of lemonade, and there was no chocolate. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. We learned, though, did we not, that the organisers of this shambles had, if inadvertently, spread far more happiness far further than could ever have been accomplished by any similar but competently staged event, which would perhaps have been fleetingly enjoyed by a few hundred kids, grimly endured by their parents, and swiftly forgotten by both cohorts, whereas this calamity has brought delight to millions, and in a manner which would surely have been approved of by Wonka's creator, whose sensibilities tend in general toward the macabre. We have learned overall and yet again that human beings like few things as much as the opportunity to express self-righteous umbrage at relatively petty injustice when it is visited upon themselves or to chuckle with unadulterated delight when it is visited upon others, a combination which probably explains why Roald Dahl sold so many books in the first place. Can I get some general muttered agreement? Yeah. And... Sticking with the subject of events billed as a sumptuous extravaganza of sensory delight, intellectual stimulation and compelling characters, but which turned out to be a tacky, depressing farrago of otherwise unemployable attention seekers ruthlessly bilking a customer base of credulous rubes, we learned that the Conservative Political Action Conference, the annual American dingbat derby usually known as CPAC, seemed as determined as ever to give the compilers of whimsical news reviews a relatively easy week, and for this much we thank the conveners thereof. We learned that the Willy Wonka of this particular chocolate factory believes that golden tickets should henceforth be issued more sparingly, on the grounds that foreigners speak foreign. These are languages. It's the craziest thing. They have languages that nobody in this country has ever heard of. It's a very horrible thing. Coming over here with their languages like Czech, as spoken by Trump's first wife, and Slovenian, as spoken by his third wife, and Russian, as spoken by his GRU handlers, and gibberish, as spoken by CPAC guest and the UK's most former Prime Minister Liz Truss, who brandished a copy of the Financial Times. These are the friends of the bureaucratic establishment. They are the friends of the deep state and they work together with bureaucrats of which we've got many more in Britain than you have here in the United States to keep things the same and people in Britain aren't happy about that. We learned when we looked it up that the United States federal government employs about two and a quarter million people, whereas the UK civil service is staffed by roughly 500,000, but numbers were never Liz Truss's strong suit. Yikes! Returning to CPAC's keynote speaker, however, we learned that Donald Trump's morbid obsession with modern water pressure has not, unlike apparently American taps, ebbed. They put restrictors on showers, they put restrictors on faucets, you buy brand new faucets. Aren't they beautiful, darling? Oh yes, look at them, beautiful brass faucets, they're so beautiful. Let's try them. Ah, shit, no water's coming out. And drop. 
It drops out. You turn on the shower. I'm going to take a shower tonight. My hair is going to look better than it ever looked. I get that whole deal ready. I'm all set to go. Turn on the shower. Ding. And we further learn that Trump has not been able to find the time in between rounds of golf and appearances in court to crack open an introductory history of the country he hopes once again to lead. And we learn this from his determination to ennoble the Washington DC riot of January 26, 2021 as something more commendable than the vandalism of a rabble of dunces incited by an angry clown. You heard the J6 hostages, didn't you? You heard that. And uh, I will tell you, there's never been in the history of our country a group of people treated the way they've been treated. There's never been anything like it. Slaves, Don. There were slaves. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you, Andrew. You with The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Let's hear from a very familiar voice now on The Globalist, Georgina Godwin, but not here in the familiar spot of Studio One. My co-presenter is a full 10,000 miles away. Good afternoon, Georgina. Where are you? I am in Adelaide. Adelaide, the city of churches. Now, that's not because it's got 100 million churches. It's because it was the um, it was the first city to be settled by free men, not by penal colonies. And one of their main thing was freedom of religion. And you're, are you there to pray or are you there for what you're more commonly celebrated for here on Monocle Radio, which is your books? Yeah, praying on authors, perhaps, is what I'm here to do. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm here because it's got um, a lot going on. Um, so what happens is uh, that Adelaide has this main festival and basically, it's kind of up there with the festivals in Edinburgh and Avignon. It's like one of the top three festivals in the world. And it's just huge. Um, and that starts today and it runs for most of, of March. It's also got the Fringe Festival, which is Australia's biggest arts festival. And again, you've just got weird and wacky things coming up. All, at the, all I, mean, I think something like 6,000 plus independent artists, 300 plus venues. It's extraordinary. But the main thing is, for me at least, just for a week, you've got Adelaide Writers Week. And that's where they're bringing authors, acclaimed authors from all over the world uh, to talk in the wonderful Pioneer Gardens. It's an outdoor festival uh, and a couple of stages going on. And it's just the most magical thing. This is the third time I've done it. Uh, and it's just so wonderful to be back in this city. And the, the Writers' Week actually launches tomorrow. And you can just feel the kind of palpable excitement, particularly around the hotel, where every time you turn a corner, there's another famous writer. And a familiar face, but in a very um, exciting place. So tell us about Writers' Week specifically. Who is on the on the billing? Gosh, there are so many. So the, the kind of one of the big things is called the Grand Dame of Letters, and that's Mary Beard, Beard, Anne Enright, Jane Smiley, and Elizabeth Strout. Uh, all of those have incidentally been uh, guests on Meet the Writers in, in the past. But then there are all sorts of other people like Laurie Anderson, the musician, uh, Alistair Campbell, of course, Tony Blair's ex-spin doctor, J.M. Kutsir, the revered South African writer who actually lives here in Adelaide, uh, Patrick DeWitt, who I just uh, shared a cab with, Richard Flanagan, who won the Booker, uh, who is Australian, Anna Funda, all sorts of people, Thomas Keneally, that wonderful man who wrote Schindler's Ark. Um, And there's quite a lot of politics as well. You've got Avi Schleim here, who was born in Baghdad. He grew up in Israel, so he'll be talking about uh, everything that's that's going on there. Christos Tsioklos, who's that guy that wrote The Slap, 
He's got a brand new book out, very sexy, I have to tell you. Um, and Yanis Varoufakis, the, the Greek economist and academic, he's here too. Uh, also people like Peter Frankpan and various various other names that you will have heard of. And it's just so wonderful that they're all here together uh, in for this festival. Who are you going to be talking to? So I am speaking to Kathy Lett, who is the comedian, uh, and she's Australian. Uh, kind of rather weirdly, we live almost next door to each other in London uh, and share a hairdresser and see each other quite frequently. So it's a little bit odd <laughs> to be here together. I'm also speaking to Rachelle Unreich, who's written this most wonderful book called A Brilliant Life which is all about um, her mother who managed to survive the Holocaust. And that, that sounds pretty grim, but actually she's written it beautifully. It's kind of a story of the motherly love of lots of coincidence and serendipity. It's a, it's a great story. Uh, and then Maggie McKellar, who is this um, just extraordinary woman who is a sheep farmer, but also a, a really beautiful nature writer. And so she writes about like a year in the life of a farm, but a farm in Tasmania on the edge of, of drought all of the time. It's a lot about you know, what life and death means, particularly in, in, in the life of a farm, but in the life of a planet too. And it's a bit of a memoir about uh, her, her husband and, and she her husband died. And then she went on a television show talking about her life and she just released a book. And a, a farmer in Tasmania got in touch through the programme and they started talking to each other and now they're married, <laughs> which I thought was rather sweet. Um, tell us a little bit more about, you're not just in Adelaide, you're taking the opportunity to do Australia. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you're going to come all this way, right? <laughs> Don't um, blame so, you at all. Um, and, I, and actually what I'm doing, I'm doing two little projects on the side. So one is to uh, in, uh, interview a lot of Australian writers for the programme Meet the Writers. So uh, I've done that with Gail Jones, who's a big award winner here. I uh, also went to see Richard Feidler, who's as well as being a writer, is a, is a radio host. And he works at ABC. So I went to have a look at the ABC studios, which are really lovely. Um, yesterday, I was in Melbourne, where I had um, just completely coincidentally, we bumped into each other, uh, lunch with Peter Frankopan, who wrote The Silk Roads, uh, and um, supper with Magda Subansky, who is the wonderful comedian, who was in Kathleen Kim. She played Sharon in that. She played the farmer's wife in Babe. And we had a, a kind of slightly hilarious lunch. Um, I'll be going to Brisbane to speak to some people there and back to Sydney to speak to Michelle de Kretzer. And I'm also doing a, a rather odd thing where... There are so many uh, ex-Zimbabweans uh, who live in Australia. So I'm doing the Diaspora Diaries and speaking to lots of people about how their lives used to be and what they're like now. So uh, it's quite full-on work mode, I have to say. Georgina Godwin, thank you so much for telling us what you're up to in Australia. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. 
47 in Zurich, 23.47 in Los Angeles. Here in London, it's 7.47am. Uh, let's find out the latest news from the big screen with film critic and regular Monocle Radio contributor Karen Krasanovich in the studio with me now. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. How's, uh, what's happening in the world of Krasanovich? Well, I, I, I didn't get that wet this morning, which was amazing because it's really coming down outside. It is. If you're an listening, enormous umbrella. If you're listening on the other side of the world, ladies and gentlemen, we're in London. It's absolutely <laughs> tanking it down. Um, right. Uh, Oscars, Oscars. Oscars, 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 We are Oscars, all Oscars. excited for the Oscars next weekend. And um, people are going, well, is it going to be shorter than the BAFTAs or longer? It's always longer. Always. Oh, and just one a quick of the... question. Are we actually genuinely excited about the Oscars? I, I, am. I know you are because it's your job. but And also because it's quite fun. But it, does it still do it for people? Well, it doesn't have the kudos that it used to have. Right. It used to be one of the top viewed television broadcasts and now it isn't even in the top 10 i mean you know it's not a super bowl doesn't get that many eyes on the screen but it is important for the industry and the industry is going through a lot of churn at the minute so yeah it's 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 christmas for those of us who are interested in film and filmmaking and it is one of those moments where obviously the the hollywood looks beautiful and perfect and fabulously put together but for the last couple of years, the you know what's been happening behind the scenes has been far from it. So, mm. how is the, the the Oscars able to pr- not necessarily put on a brave face, but to sort of step up and show up? Well, um, number one, the uh, AMPAS, which is the the Academy Awards, have about ten thousand people internationally that are part of part of the system, part of the voting system. And I think they're they're spreading it, they're making it more international. They're getting a lot more global stakeholders as they say. And I think by spreading that kind of interest, it's going to keep itself relevant. It's no longer going to be just oh you live in LA and you're going to vote. Or okay. you're an old white person. And, and also the, the the ceremony itself, um, you mentioned that it was going to be longer. Um, the it's, suggestion is songs. I, I mean, it's, it's going to be long. It's going to be at least three. <laughs> it's going to be at least three hours, and you think, "Wow, that's almost long enough to be a movie." Um, right. So, what we've got? We've got John Patiste, we've got Billie Eilish, uh, we've got Scott George and the Osage Singers, and Ryan Gosling and Mark Ronson. Those are the ones that I'm coming for, uh, singing at the Academy Awards. Now, they don't just do a snippet of the of the of the song they do the whole song so that's one of the reasons why things take so long so are we looking at a full rendition of um, I'm Just <laughs> I'm Can just can. I think so this yes. is actually worth staying up for <laughs> see I told you there's gifts here it's not just that Diane Warren has got her 15th nomination it is for a good year for music the fire inside it is it is from Searchlight's Flame and Hot which I actually admit I haven't seen um, and also okay you, I don't know if I'm saying this right Wazaze a song for my people from Killers of the Flower Moon has been nom- nominated as well. So it's 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 going to be very interesting. Jean-Baptiste from uh, from his American Symphony documentary, it never went away. But I think we're all going to be there for Barbie and just see which Barbie song is, because there's, there's two, two nominated. Uh, and is, is Barbie going to get anywhere at the awards this year? It just seems to be quite sort of a huge disappointment for anybody who is cheerleading Barbie. Yeah, well... The thing is, uh, Oscars don't really like uh, financial success. <laughs> and also, for some reason, they don't really seem to like Greta Gerwig that much. Um, and I think it's because she doesn't present herself as this sort of big ego-driven monster. But if you listen to any interviews with her, she's just breathtaking. Um, let's talk about something else which yeah. is breathtaking, which is a prospect that the naked gun is coming back. <laughs> 
and, oh. it's, and it's going to be Liam Neeson. I was, I was, this is wonderful. I was very excited until I discovered who's writing it, and now I'm not. Um, okay, the Naked Gun reboot's gonna it's going to be in 2025. Now, Akiva Ak- 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 Schaefer uh, is directing. Now it's the same person that um, did. Uh, well, uh, pop stars keep don't stop stopping. You'll remember that one. Mm-hmm. No, okay, maybe you don't. No, but um, don't worry. It's going to do someone will somewhere. This is this has been okay. This this movie was announced uh, several years ago with Liam Neeson in the role of um, well of of Leslie Nielsen, right? Yes, and which was very very funny. Now, don't forget the original. Uh, which the first one was 1988, was written by the same people that did Airplane from 1980. These are amazing, amazing writers, really good, but none of this is from Jim Abrams, David Zucker, or or Jerry Zucker, who are the really funny guys. So I think that this one, I hate to say it, I'm looking forward to it, maybe I'm wrong, but it's going to be more like Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers than it is... Now, I know I'm probably telling jokes that only dogs can hear. But, uh, yeah, it's it's going to be a wholesome update of Naked Gun. Oh, seriously. Okay. Mm. Hmm. Karen it. don't worry about it. Thank you. That might be just three hours we'd I might have spared. Um, Karen Grzanovic, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Now... We'll stay with film because the sci-fi blockbuster Dune Part 2 is in cinemas today. The epic visual storytelling of the movie is matched by its otherworldly soundtrack. And the man responsible is the German film score composer and music producer Hans Zimmer. Here he tells Monocle's Robert Band about the first time Dune director Denis Villeneuve floated the idea of working together on the film. We were at Warner Brothers and we were standing on the Warner Brothers lot and we were, I think we were waiting for a car or something. And he very quietly says to me, have I ever heard of a book called Dune? And I think, you know, like these little dogs that get really excited and sort of <laughs> jump up and down. I think I, be, I became one of those. And I think I scared... He threw you a bone, right? Yeah, I scared him a little bit, um, you know, with my enthusiasm and you know, that I really, really, really knew the mm-hmm. book, you know. Yeah. So, so in fact, we were talking about this earlier. Um, I never, he on purpose never showed me the script because he wanted me to retain the purity of knowing the book, you know, and never being influenced by, by yeah. you know, by, by So you're, you're kind of reading, you're, you're going back to the original text and yeah, your I'll, ideas yeah, then. Yeah, I was the, you know, as, as, as the pretentious musician would call it, the ur-text. I like yes. that, though. I like that. Yeah. What, um, and so, so did you react to rushes? Did you, you, you didn't read the script until right at the end of the process? Because it's a very organic no, 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 thing, no, no, isn't no. it? Yeah, no, well, the first one, you know, when we were in the, we started... We started and then COVID hit. Mm. And so suddenly, um, <laughs> suddenly things became... <laughs> did, you have, did you have too many or not enough ideas when COVID hit, I wonder? I oh, expect I, it's the I, former. No. All right. So suddenly my studio moved into my, my sitting room, and mm. um, which is right next to my daughter's bedroom. And sometimes at like 5.30 in the morning, she'd be like coming and going, Daddy, do you think... Do you think you could just play something else and a little quieter? <laughs> I have exams today, you know. But the score is basically my band, the band I tour with, the band I love, the mm. people I. So it's not an orchestra, obviously not an orchestral mm-hmm. score. I always, I always thought that was a, 
you know, my 13-year-old teenage arrogance always went, why am I hearing an orchestra when I'm in space? Right, so, you know, yeah. It's like, like isn't, that, isn't that all wrong? So we built instruments. I mean, I have a friend... Kubrick's got a lot to answer for with choosing... Uh, yeah, the, the Blue Danube and, you know... And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know, but, he, but God, did he give us a gift. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean... It's really interesting because obviously, in space, you know, you know, in space I, no one can hear you play anything. I know, no, no, <laughs> but but you know, obviously, I thought a lot about Kubrick in two thousand and one. Not mm. not so much for this film, but for Interstellar, for instance. Mm-hmm. And actually, you saying this just now at this very moment suddenly makes me go, you know what? What? Why? What I think he did, what? Why he picked that music? Because he needed to to figure out how to show a real human element with it within right. his story yeah because i mean this film i'll look at you know what we did i mean we finished the first film and i just carry on writing knowing so i understand now this is great i love the infectious let's call it hans zimmer's infectious enthusiasm <laughs> you can't turn off the tap i can't turn <laughs> off the tap i can't turn off the tap and we weren't greenlit Right, so mm. it's just, it's just, it's just, you know, like tenacity. It's like, okay, so I they know, get that for free, I know, right? I know they're going <laughs> to let us make the next movie. So I kept yeah. on writing, and 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 as Denis will tell you, like uh, six months in, he phones me and he goes, you know, the movie has been out for six months. You can stop now. And I'm going, no, 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 no. And so there's this one piece which was written in that time that I would open our set with when we were touring mm-hmm. so all you know i mean look i, I don't know if you came to and saw us at o, the o2 or you know like people in europe yeah many people in europe heard this piece not knowing what it was because i always had this idea that they'd come and see the movie and they'd go i felt this once before yeah, right. It's I, it's not even like you recognise it, but you sort of had that feeling once. You've got before. a sort of strange, yeah. You, there's that thing of um, déjà vu before it's yeah, even happened. Exactly. Right? You've got a, str- a muscle memory. You don't know where it comes from. Right. So, so, so you I, built it, and they will come. I, essentially. Exactly. So I wanted, to, I, wa- I wanted to play with, I wanted to play with that idea, you mm-hmm. know. And and and, um, and I mean, this, look, the score is pretty abstract. It's pretty. Um, it's pretty abrasive in places, you know. It's it's not cuddly, it's a, but then you suddenly get that moment of very pure and beautiful playing by by my friend Pedro Yustash, <laughs> and there's real beauty in that playing. That was music from the film score composer and music producer Hans Zimmer. He was talking to Robert Bound, and if you want to hear the full interview, tune in to this week's edition of Monocle on Culture. It's really worth it, I promise you. Well, that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to our producers, Chris Chermack, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Laura Kramer. Our researcher is Naoma Ekwe and our studio manager is Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time on Monday. Hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. <laughs>